Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Thank you. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you. It's been such a good time here this morning as we have been able to, to praise you, to have good fellowship with the brothers and sisters. And uh, now we turn our attention to your word and we pray, Lord, that it would bear great fruit here today. Let us not leave the same way that we came in here. We ask in your name. Amen. A woman and her husband interrupted their vacation because they had to go to a dentist. The woman barged into the office and blurted out, I want a tooth pulled, and I don't want any Novocaine because I'm in a big hurry. Just yank it out, and we'll be on our way. Well, as you can imagine, the dentist was quite impressed. You certainly are a very courageous woman, he said. Just tell me which tooth you want extracted. The woman turned to her husband and said, hurry up and show him your tooth. (laughs) You know, it's easy to be brave when you're not the person taking the risk. This morning, however, we're going to look at some men who epitomize the word bravery. Look at verse 13 with me. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. These three men aren't named, but they are part of the 30 that will be listed at the end of this chapter. One thing I want us to understand this morning is all people are created equal before God, but not all people are equal in gifts and abilities. Some people simply have greater gifts and opportunities than others. You may hear people sometimes say that you can do anything if you work hard enough. But that's simply not true. You've probably seen the commercials that tell you that here in America, if you work long and hard enough, you can be whatever you want to be. In many ways, that is just setting people up for a great disappointment. For instance, if you are 5'2 and weigh in at 130 pounds, you are not going to play middle linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. And I don't care how hard you work, or how devoted you are. You can drink protein milkshakes and train all the time, but it's not going to happen. Why? You do not have the physical attributes that are needed to do that job. That's just how life works. Some things are just beyond our reach, no matter how hard we may try to attain it. I use myself as an example. 
I took trigonometry in high school, which as I have shared before, to me was like algebra on crack. Now I can promise you, if I devoted my entire life to only the study of trigonometry, I would never be smart enough or have the ability to get hired to teach it at Harvard or Oxford or Concord for that matter. Why? Because God did not create me with that kind of ability. He spent everything on good looks and comedy with me. You're thinking, no he didn't. (laughs) Please don't blame God for that. Uh, However, the fact that we can't achieve like others should not keep us from doing our very best. We need to realize and accept that God doesn't measure us by what he created other people to do, but by what he wanted us to do with the gifts and the abilities that he has so graciously given us. I also think it's important to note that not everybody is called to do the same things, even in the church. In the same way that people have different abilities in the world, some people are simply more gifted than others. Not everybody is equally smart, and not everybody is equally strong. In Jesus' parable, he gave a number of different gifts or talents to a number of different people, and he didn't apologize for doing so. And I'm glad it's like that. And so when I hear about a brain surgeon operating on someone's brain and getting paid $2 million a year, I say they deserve that. Good for them. I want to live in a world where excellence is acknowledged and rewarded. And yet in this country, we are trying to make everyone be exactly the same. And so we are afraid that we're going to hurt children's self-esteem if they don't think that they are as good as everyone else. Well, guess what? Some of them aren't as good as everybody else. The outcome of such thinking is we now have some little leagues who don't even keep score because they are concerned about the lifelong emotional scarring that would occur if your kid's team went 0-12. and But here's something to think about. By keeping score, it might produce in some of those kids the desire to be better and maybe go 6-6 and the next year, and then maybe 12-0 and the following year. Anyway, back to our story. I threw all that in, no extra cost. In the account before us in verse 13, during a particular battle holed up in a hot, stuffy cave overlooking his hometown, David saw a well which no doubt he had drank from frequently as a boy. Now, in my opinion, David's not really wanting a drink of water. I'm sure he had plenty of water on hand. I think he's probably thinking of a simpler time as his life as a shepherd boy. And then on a hot day, he would go to that well and extract a cup of that ice-cold, refreshing water. And perhaps he was yearning for a time when life seemed so much more clear and manageable. I think we can all relate to that at some level. He could probably taste the water in his mind. And so he thinks out loud saying, man, it would be so nice if I had a drink of water from that well. But there was a problem. His hometown of Bethlehem was now surrounded 
by the enemy. Now David wasn't giving an order, but his mighty men heard what their king was thinking. And because of their love and loyalty to David, they sprang into action. And you have to ask yourself, what is the motivation for that kind of devotion? To gain the real understanding, you have to look at who these men were. The answer is found in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, where they are described. It reads, And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and David became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Look at the definition of who these people are. They were those who were distressed, in debt, and discontented. Sort of sounds like the first Calvary Chapel, doesn't it? Distressed, misfits, bankrupt, outlaws, and rogues. Let's break the group down. They were distressed. They were under pressure and under stress. Two words would capture their lives. Stressed out. They were bankrupt. They couldn't even pay their bills. Perhaps the creditors were after them, and that's why they were living in caves. And finally, they were discontented. They were those who were bitter of heart and had been wronged, and in their minds at least, mistreated. And so they were more than willing to share their colossal injustices with anyone who would listen. Now, armed with that knowledge, we have a better understanding of the crowd that David was surrounding himself with during one of the darkest periods of his life. But David helped them get their lives turned around. They became respectable men who could contribute instead of always wanting to be contributed to. We'll see more of this as we make our way through this chapter. Verse 16, please. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. To retrieve this water for David would have been no easy task. First off, it was a 12-mile hike under the blazing Syrian sun. During the war, I spent 57 days in Turkey. And I can tell you, there's no hot like Middle East hot. And not only that, it was a hike through enemy territory. What is more, the Philistines controlled the town of Bethlehem. And two strategic places in the town were the town gate and the town well. When the captain would set up their headquarters, he did so at the gate. You guarded the gate against the enemy. And of course, you also guarded the town's water supply. So these men made this hike and they had to break through the Philistines And then, I gather, like the three musketeers, they had to fight their way into the city. I can imagine two of them holding off the Philistines 
while a third one got the water up and filled the water skin. And then when they got the water, they escaped again. And it was another trek back in that unrelenting heat. Now it would have been remarkable enough if these men had used stealth and secretly managed to procure the water from that Bethlehem well under the cover of darkness. But once again, in verse 16, it says that they broke through the Philistine lines. The language suggests a violent and forceful entry into the town. The recklessness in some ways is alarming, but it speaks volumes of the devotion that David's men had to their king. This action showed they would do anything for him. The one thing I want us to take from this is that it was hard to obtain the water from Bethlehem because Bethlehem was surrounded by Philistines. And by the way, it still is today. What do I mean? It's interesting to me that in Ephesians 5.26 we are told that Jesus sanctifies and cleanses the church by the washing of the water of the word. Both the scripture and the Holy Spirit in scripture are likened to water. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Please get this. The word of God is where you will draw from the well of the water of the spirit. I guarantee you that when you were most refreshed and doing your very best in the Lord was when you were consistently spending time in his word. But like Bethlehem, the word is surrounded by the enemy. I know where I can find the water of the Spirit, but the Philistines of fatigue, the Philistines of the iPhone, the Philistines of TV, and the Philistines of lethargy often encamp around the word. How did these mighty men break through to get water? It's simple. They made the effort to break through. And in the same way, it is up to each one of us to seek the Lord and say, Lord, how do I break through? Show me my schedule, my priorities, my obligations that stand between us. I promise you that if you ask the Lord to show you how to rearrange your schedule in order to break through the Philistines, he will always be faithful to do that. So these three men traveled 12 miles, broke through enemy lines, and came back with the water for their captain. What an example for us to follow in our relationship with the captain of our salvation. There are a few moments in David's life that shows us the love he inspired by his followers more powerfully than the one before us this morning. His brave men would probably have been understandably pleased with what they had done. And no doubt eager to see David's reaction as they presented him with their gift and told him how they acquired it, you can envision these three men come back with their gift. And I suppose in some ways, like children who have invested everything to get their parents a Christmas present on Christmas Day, they come wondering how David will respond to this. They give him the water skin. They tell him the story. They explain the exploit. And David, instead of drinking the water, swallows his emotion and he takes that water and he pours it out on the ground until there is a puddle at their feet. 
And then that thirsty soil drinks it up, and in a few moments, it is gone. Hey, what about that trek under the hot sun? What about the danger? What about the risking of their lives? We can look at that and think of all the unthankful, inconsiderate, disarming things David could have done. Pouring that water out has to rank near the top. But in actuality, it's just the opposite. We sense there's something magnificent here, even if it is not easy to put into words. David gave what these men had done to the Lord. It was as though he was saying that such devotion, love, and sacrifice really belongs only to God. David's response was what the three had done was so deeply profound that it's hard to at least initially understand. He would not drink it. The reason? David considered the water that had been obtained by such an act to be too precious for something as trivial as his own refreshment. The mighty three had a love for David that was more than just lip service, demonstrated by risking their lives to get a drink of water for their beloved leader. Yet David's reaction to their display of love was to pour the water out as a drink offering before the Lord. Now some may be tempted to say, surely if men went to that kind of effort to get that water, the very least David could have done would have been to consume it. But we see something here far deeper than simple human gratitude. David's conscience would not allow him to indulge in self-gratification. To him, it was more than a cup of water. It was a token of their love and devotion to him. And so the cost was just too great. His only course of action was to pour it out unto God as a drink offering before the Lord. He viewed this kind of devotion as it were, not just water, but the very blood of these three men. They risked their necks for David. This reminds me of Romans 16.3, where Apostle Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. The word for next there in the Greek is the Greek word trachilos, from which we get our English word trachea. In this way, Priscilla and Aquila figuratively laid their necks on the chopping block for the sake of the Apostle Paul. Now the deep significance of David's action is seen in these words, to the Lord. Without these words, the action of pouring out that water brought to him at such a cost of their love and devotion could have been seen as an appalling insult. It could be seen as a rejection of their gift, despising the sacrifice with which it had been obtained. But after this, no one misunderstood David's action along such lines because they heard what he said. And so David says, you men got this water at the risk of your own blood. I can't drink water like that. I'm not worthy of that. And he pours it out. The text says as a libation, as a drink offering to God. He took the loyalty of his men 
They're left taking the high pitch of devotion, and he turned that over back to the Lord. And that's why they responded to him as a leader. He was indeed their commander, but he was also a servant of the Most High. And he took that devotion that was given to him, and he gave it right back to God. Paul did that. Remember the Philippians? They were people loyal and devoted to the Apostle Paul. Again and again in his ministry, when the funds got low, they always came through with a welcome check. And the Philippian letter is a thank you letter to what they have done for him. Paul says in Philippians 4.18, This gift of yours was a fragrant offering to God. It was an acceptable sacrifice to him. Like David, Paul took the devotion given to him and he gave it back to God. That was the kind of man David was. That was the kind of leader that he was. He was loyal to his men and they were loyal to him and David was loyal to God. No matter what the Lord put in David's hands, he used it to honor God and help God's people. Think about it. Whether it was a sling, a sword, a harp, a scepter, or even a cup of water, as in this occasion, it was always the same. And so when David looked into the cup, he didn't see water. He saw the blood of these three men who had risked their lives to satisfy his desire. To drink that water would have demeaned his men and cheapened the brave deeds of these three heroes. It would communicate to them their lives weren't all that important to him. Instead, David turned the cave into a temple and poured the water out as a drink offering before the Lord, as he had seen the priests do in the tabernacle. Some may have thought David was crazy for wasting that water. But David would have said, Not only did I not waste it, I did the very best thing possible I could with it. David poured out to the Lord what was precious to him. Now fast forward a few hundred years. In a room belonging to Simon the leper, we watch as Jesus reclines at a table when a woman named Mary came to him with an alabaster jar of perfume. A jar of perfume, we are told, worth about a year's wage. And she breaks it open and the aroma fills the room and she pours it all out at his feet. Now this upset Judas. He said what she did was a waste of money. Jesus said, no, the perfume wasn't wasted. What she did was a good thing. She is preparing me for my burial. And I want to assure you this morning that nothing you ever give to God is ever wasted. According to Jesus, even a cup of water given in his name will be remembered. Always remember, a gift of love is never wasted. Look at verse 18 with me. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. As we went through these studies, David's nephew Abishai has been a prominent person in the story of David's life. If you recall, in the early days, it was Abishai who offered to eliminate Saul for David. And Abishai later, true to character, had also offered to silence the curses of Shimei by removing his head. 
And so, and so Abishai, the brother Joab, is noted in the list of these mighty men. But how about this? Is Joab? No. And that's interesting. Because in his day, Joab was the more prominent man. But in God's economy, Abishai, his younger brother, is the one that is noted instead. That teaches me that in the kingdom of God, things are not always what they seem. That's why I'm convinced that in eternity there will be glorious and shocking surprises. I've always said, I believe with all my heart, that if a man with an 8th grade education as a church janitor is more faithful than the pastor of that church in their ministry, the janitor will receive the greater rewards. Because God rewards us on the abilities he has given us and not someone else. Verse 20. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. First, Benaiah killed, it says, two lion-like men of Moab. Now this gave him the confidence to do subsequent battle later with a real lion. And perhaps that's why you're facing lion-like men and circumstances today who are roaring and seeking to devour you. Perhaps they are preparing you to do battle against the real lion, Satan, who seeks to devour your witness, your faith, and your joy. It says he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I wrote in my Bible in the margin, I guess the only thing worse than fighting a lion is doing it in lousy weather. So, if you find yourself in such a circumstance, you have your bad news and you have your good news. The bad news is, if you find yourself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, you've got a real problem. The good news is, it's probably the last problem you will ever have. Because not only do lions grow up to weigh 500 pounds and can run 35 miles an hour, their vision is five times better than a human with 20-20 vision. And so this lion had a huge advantage in this snowy pit. And I can guarantee you a sure-footed lion with cat-like reflexes certainly will gain the upper paw in snowy, slippery conditions. F.W. Borm has a wonderful sermon about Benai killing the lion in which he points out that Benaiah met the worst of enemies, a lion, in the worst of places, a pit, and under the worst of conditions, on a snowy day. Or we can rephrase that and say, the lion was a tough job in a tough place during a tough time. Now one of the great challenges when we read stories like this is that we know how it's going to end. And because we know the ending... We assume it was inevitable. Psycholo psychologist calls this hindsight bias. And it's one of the greatest challenges we can face when we read the scripture. Because we can have the propensity to be Monday morning quarterbacks. We know how every story ends. For example, before we read about the crucifixion, we already know about the resurrection. And because we are reading these stories thousands of years after the fact, and because we know how each story ends, 
we can lose the element of surprise, the element of danger, and the element of the risk involved. That's how it is with this story. We know that Benai is the one who walks out of that pit, and if we aren't careful, we can just assume that it had to be that way. But this has to rank as one of the craziest acts of courage in all of Scripture. As we close, I want you to take this home with you. God will meet you in the pit. The deepest, darkest, distressing, and discouraging moments are often the sanctuary that God chooses to abide in. I usually can't find God in the posh, plus, ornate confines of a perfect and painless life. Very often, he will show up where there are lines in close proximity. And so the right place is what others would often consider to be the wrong place. I'll let James close us out. This is James 1-2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Maybe today go back home and read Hebrews 11. The giants of the faith all faced impossible odds and pits. And yet that is the very thing that makes them heroes of the faith. Father, I don't know where anyone is this morning as far as where we are in our walk with you. Some of us may be battling lions and snowy pits right now. Uh, some of us may have a time of refreshing, knowing that that's usually just given to us for a time to strengthen ourselves to go back into the snowy pits. And so, Father, wherever anyone in here is, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Show us what you would have us to do with our lives. Show us how to rearrange our schedules and priorities that we may be pleasing to you because that is always the best way to live. We ask in your name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, 